Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Susan Castrava of Wine Enthusiast Magazine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Thanks. So you grew up in Michigan. Correct. Northern Michigan. That was uh, a wine mecca at the time? And, uh... <laughs> no, at the time it was a cherry mecca. It's a, it's a farming, it's a resort area, and it's also known for cherry production. So when I was growing up, there wasn't really a lot of wine being made. It was mostly just cherries. But in the time since I've been traveling and been away, they've created a pretty decent wine industry, um, which, you know, the wines are getting better. It's not very big production, but they're making some Riesling and, and some dessert wines up there that are actually pretty good. Now, when I go home to see family, I actually get to tour wineries as well, which is kind of fun. And at some point, you started working in uh, the media business, working for a newspaper. Right. So I started early. I started at 16 on a local paper. And kind of, you know, always knew that I wanted to be writing in some way. And this was one way of kind of looking to a career and in, in a way of making money doing it. So I started as an intern for our local paper at 16. Well, I was involved on... Put you on the cherry beat. Yeah. Like, Follow the cherries. <laughs> if there's anything going on with the cherries, let us know oh, immediately. Yeah. I have some really funny old clips from the early stuff I wrote. And it's like, okay, I don't know if this was really a precursor to my career, but I had some, yeah. I had some challenging uh, beats, but I think I did all right. So it was fun. I did that. And then I worked on you know, school papers and all that type of thing when I was in school as well. So junior high on, always some type of media. But you liked it. I love it. Yeah. Loved it. It was your thing. You yeah. Apparently like... I'm crazy because <laughs> anybody who's in media and works on deadline all the time, we all complain about it. But I'm like, we're still here. <laughs> so right, right. this must work for us on some level. I don't know what, what that is, but, but it, we it, choose it. I mean, at some level, that's the kind of the old school media beat, right? Yeah. Like the local paper. Right, like. exactly. That is, And honestly, I mean, just I really feel like it was a good training for me getting into lifestyle magazines, all that stuff. I always feel that for working journalists, whether it's, you know, the local beat in junior high, whatever, up to the New York Times, newspaper training is excellent. It really prepares you for almost any type of journalism you're going to get into because it teaches you about turning around stories quickly, how to like cut to the chase on what is interesting. It's just good practices. And so whatever you do after that, it, you have a good base. So I'm, I'm happy I started there. You always remember the follow-up question. You're like, that's how the 2010 tastes, but what about the 11? Oh, absolutely. Get them on the follow-up? Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, it's just constantly my big thing, sort of drum that I beat at Wine Enthusiast and then also in all the jobs I've had is why this and why now? And that I learned from newspaper. You know, it's it may be really interesting in your world at that moment, but you still have to always ask those questions because readers don't really, they don't have a lot of time regardless of whether it's wine, the lifestyle, or breaking news and politics, whatever it is, people don't have a lot of time. You have to make sure whatever you put in front of them is worth being seen right now. So it's good learning, I guess, that I had. So you progressed to Northwestern. Yes. And then you ended up kind of migrating towards the West Coast. Right. So part of that was romance because my husband-to-be was living out there and we met and also was, I had an option at the time, I was living in Chicago, which was cold, really cold. 
And I had an option of either going east or going west. And honestly, I went through a couple of super brutal winters in Chicago and it sealed my fate. I was like, California is the way to go. So uh, I went out to the San Francisco Bay Area and worked for some travel publications. That's really what my background was, was travel, kind of travel, journalism, travel, you know, adventure travel type of writing. And why do you think you chose that route? Just because I've always been really curious about other cultures since I was young and a big reader, you know, obviously love, love literature, books, anything I could ever get my hands on as a kid until now, I sought out. And so the cultural side of travel to me immediately attracted me. And my parents, thankfully, were great about that. And whenever they could get us on a trip, they took us. So I just grew up with it. And it made sense. I'm a writer. I love travel. I had experience. They went together. And you met your husband? So, yeah. So, I met my husband. And he was in the science field um, or that he had studied science. And he was kind of at a crossroads in his career at the time. His two interests were technology or winemaking. He was a person that was really interested in wine, completely just separate to knowing me. He's really the reason, and he likes to remind me often that I kind of went into this wine side of journalism because I got out there and he immediately was like, you need to, let's start touring the Russian river. Let's do some trips to Napa. Let's on the weekend, we were visiting wineries. We were tasting wine and I knew nothing. I have to be totally honest at the time I was interested, but I really wasn't educated about wine. So the way I learned initially was just tasting. And that's what I still tell people to do now. Just go out and taste it. Try it. His other interest was in a NASA program. So you could have ended up as an astronaut. Like I, I, I could be doing this interview from the space station. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. His, he was an aerospace engineer and uh, was interested in getting into the space program. Still super interested in all of that. We both. Talk about a travel piece. Uh, yeah, totally. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on. You know, there's the, some of the news lately has been negative. Unfortunately, you know, Branson's doing the intergalactic sure. stuff. And uh, I went to an event that was sort of a spirit slash intergalactic event at the uh, Museum of Natural History. And uh, it's really, it's kind of cool. I mean, who knows what will happen with that program, but definitely I'm, again, I'm a traveler, so we'll see what happens with space. But I don't know about, you know, wine making or (laughs) culinary programs in space yet, but you never know. Well, it gives a whole new meaning to like flying winemaker. It kind of does. Yeah. That could become something very different. It's not just the seasons (laughs) that are different. It's the whole goddamn planet. Exactly. Totally different. You think that the, you think climate change on the, on earth was tough and a challenge? Trimars. We don't even have water here. (laughs) It's totally dry. This is really dry. Exactly. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows? So you're cruising around wineries Uh and you're kind of getting into that. Kind of getting into that, meeting people. Again, I, because of the travel writing I was doing, it just was a natural progression that I was writing about food and wine in those pieces because that's what people, even before I think the huge sort of wave of wine and food interest hit the U.S., this is 10 plus years ago, people still wanted to know, like, what do I eat when I go there? What dishes do I have in Morocco? What do I, you know, drink when I'm in France? So I had to think that way anyway. But I think as li- as I lived in California, and it was so much part of the lifestyle to have wine everywhere, I started to get interested personally, and I started to drill down into what that, you know, what that meant, what those were. And so as time went on, I think timing was really great for me because it was a time when wine interest in the U.S. was starting to grow. And there just weren't a lot of writers around who, I guess, you know, could see it a little bit more from a lifestyle perspective. So step back just a little bit. Obviously, technicality and education is important, but you need to get people interested in the first place. And the way of doing that is to make it accessible. So that was sort of how I started. I was sort of like, I'm going to write this to the reader in the same way that I'd like to read it. I'm learning, so I'll write it in the way that a learning person would like to read. Um, And I guess, you know, the timing was good because as I started doing more of that writing, I had more people starting to seek me out saying, I like what you're doing. You know, I'd love to see more of that type of writing in the wine sort of press. So, um, and I think also 
to some extent, the fact that I was a little younger, which helped, and that I'm female also. All those things can actually work. I can in- confirm some of those. Yeah. I, you, know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying from visual analysis. Yes. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, it it was just another voice that hadn't really been very prevalent in wine press. And definitely the producers and the people on the press side recognize this is a good thing. We need somebody who can speak a different language in a, in a different way to get people excited about it. And so, this was kind of like mid-90s? or Yeah, this was late 90s. Which was a power time for California wine, and you were in California. I was there at the time when there was a lot happening, exactly. I was lucky, and I made a lot of great contacts and a lot of really good friends and people that you know really helped me out early in my career, people now in my position with Wine Enthusiast, I'm working with really closely. Who so, are some of those? So one of them, you know, most importantly, was one of my mentors, who's Jim Gordon. Oh, like from the old Spectator. Yeah, so Jim Gordon was the former managing editor of Spectator. He is now uh, working for Wines and Vines as their editor, and he also uh, runs a a Meadowood Symposium, which is a wine writer symposium in Napa every year. So he's really active. But what we've done with him is, you know, he and I have been friends for years and we've expanded, Wine Enthusiast expanded its coverage, its tasting coverage in California. And he was one of the first people I came to and said, you know, I know you've got a lot of other things going on, but what do you think about joining our tasting team? So he said, yeah, I want to do that. I want to get back into some tasting. So he's one of my editors out there now. He's a freelance editor. He covers Sierra Foothills. He's doing Mendocino, but he's, we're working together. You make him drive a lot. I make him drive a lot. I do. But, you know, he want, he knew when he took it that there that would be involved. He's really happy about it. He really enjoys it. And he's a great taster, obviously. So, What were um, some of your first experiences meeting Jim? So Jim and I met. Basically, the joke about my, my professional relationship with Jim is that I kind of stalked him in the early days because he was... Always flattering. I know, right? A little weird, but... But he he knows the story. So basically how it started was that he was editing a magazine called Wine Country Living, which was a big magazine at the time. It had a TV show associated with it. It was doing a lot of the things, honestly, that I've taken into Wine Enthusiast since I've been sort of leading it, which was lifestyle, beautiful photography. It made wine kind of sexy in a way that nobody else was doing. And I was like, that's really smart. He was the editor of that. And there was a position that I wanted. It actually wasn't open. I wanted to be on the editorial team there. And so I started emailing him. I had never met him in person. And just, you know, doing the thing you do when you want a job, which is send your resume and talk about how great you are and everything. And he kept saying, well, you know, you sound great, but there's no position open. So I basically, over the course of six months, drove him completely nuts and just kept saying, guess what? I'm still here. I still want to work for you. I love what you do. So by the time a position opened up, he had me in, you know, obviously I passed the test, he hired me, but it was kind of like a funny thing because I felt sort of guilty <laughs> because it's like, I said, you're hiring me because I'm qualified, right? Not just because I'm making you nuts. And he's like, no, 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 you're the right, you were the right choice all along. I just didn't have anything for you. So anyway, you know, that was our sort of early back and forth. And I knew who he was. Obviously he had a reputation in wine country and, and beyond. But I recognized that that was going to be a great entree for me to get really a little more seriously into the wine space on the media side. So that was one. I just liked him. I thought he was accomplished. I met him. He's extremely easy to talk to, very approachable. So I think one of the the main things for me that I still remember and we talk about is he taught me to taste. He really was the person who got me into tasting wine professionally, really drilling down into how to deconstruct a wine. And it happened kind of organically. I was I was in the office and Jim had a tasting of champagne he was doing. And uh, I was just kind of working on some articles. He just came in and said, just whatever you're doing, stop, come in and follow me. You're, you're doing something with me right now. And I said, okay. Walked in and just saw like just, you know, 50 plus bottles of champagne like and glasses lined up and he's like i'm gonna teach you how to taste wine today sit down <laughs> so, and he did i sat down and you know like many people i had i was insecure about it you know i said i don't know i don't you know how much formal training do i really need i haven't done court any coursework yet and he said you know what you like when you eat something right you know how to sit down at a table and and you know when you like something has too much oregano or it's too peppery or you like it spicy, you know how to do all that, right? He said, yeah, of course. 
I know what I like. This is the same thing. Just approach it. It's 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 food in a glass. Just this. Follow your instincts and think of it in the exact same way. And it really, you know, obviously that's rudimentary. And as you become more sort of in, immersed in in tasting, you learn other ways of tasting. But it was so great because it got me to sit down and get through those first flights and talk openly with him. And he said, you're doing it. You know, you have a good palate. You, you know, this is something that we can build on. So that was great. And I, you know, I've told the story that the next day I came into work and had these cold sores on the inside of my mouth. And I said, what's going on? And he said, ah, occupational hazard. That's part of the deal, you know. So it was definitely a an important thing for me. So I do feel really sort of thankful that I had someone who was so approachable teach me in the early stages. And I think that has really also kind of informed how I talk about wine to people and always have, because here was a guy that was really, truly an expert and knew, and, and especially on champagne, because he used to taste champagne for a spectator for years. He could have been arrogant and he never was. So I learned a lot about that. And I learned how to talk about wine to other people. And I hopefully learned how to help the writers in the magazine talk about wine, even though they're experts, what, how to balance that expertise and with a friendly sort of approachable tone. You'd think he so. could have given you a recommendation for a good cold sore medication before <laughs> the tasting, though. He could have given me the heads up on that. I will agree with that. You know, it was a little bit of hazing. Maybe you wanted to see how I would deal with it, you know, and I did. I rolled with it. Like I got, you know, got through it. I tasted more the next day. So obviously I was in, but. How yeah. long were you at Wine Country Living? I was only there about a year and a half. What, did, what else did you pick up while you were there? In that time? I definitely picked up, again, how to turn around stories quickly. It, it, we worked on a pretty, it was a monthly magazine, but it was a small staff. So we were turning out a lot of articles. I would say for me, that was the first time I was just full-time writing about wine and expected to do it in a creative way. It was not technical wine writing. It was a lifestyle magazine. So what I learned is, okay, how do I make this approachable now? And how do I take something, because it was mainly California-based, but it was being distributed nationally, how do I take something local and make it national on the wine side? Where do you draw the line? What's too technical in writing and what's lifestyle? How, what's the difference between those two things? It's a really good question. And I it comes up every day at Wine Enthusiast. I think that our readership is informed and they're knowledgeable, but they're not looking for extremely technical information. They're interested. They're not experts. Though I think most people who know wine, it's we're all reluctant to ever call ourselves experts because it's ongoing. I have other people call me that for y me. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like and, and, and I think I'm kidding. <laughs> you probably are. No, no, but, I didn't. Yeah. I just, no, but I mean, I, I think there it's, there's always, you know, it's always an education that goes on and on. But for me, you know, it's, I just, I don't want us to read like a textbook. You can get into soil types. You can get into terroir. You can get into, I mean, it's important to talk a little bit about those things. They do impact the wine that gets into a glass. And readers do like that. But it can't sound like it's a science textbook. You know, you have to really just using terms that people will understand. Compare it to things that they would know. I think it's just stepping back and it's very easy when you are working on something as focused as, and we cover other things in the magazine, obviously, we're not just wine, we do beer and spirits and, but wines are focused. And I think people who are tasters, especially, it can be tough because they're so focused on that one topic and they forget how to talk about it outside of their own head in a way. It's like, I already know what this means or the other tasters know what I mean. For me, it's always just stop and try to step out of that if you can. And, you know, it's really interesting because one of the things that I know that I've done and some of the other editors have done, we've had these conversations that just, we found that we were all doing the same thing, which was when we were writing or when we were working on a piece, we tried to think of somebody that we knew who was not in the wine business, like a friend, our tasting director, it's her sister. Every time we always chuckle about this. I've never met her sister. I really want to, but you know, everybody has somebody in their life who 
embodies this person that we're trying to write to. And it helps to put a real person there and say, okay, in my case, actually, it's also one of my sisters who's really wine interested. She lives in Michigan. She's not going to tastings like I do every, you know, every week, et cetera, but she wants to know. Her name is Anne. And I always think, okay, I'm writing this for Anne. She's really smart, but she's not a wine person. So how do I get the right tone? And it's a great filter and it's worked for all of us. So so what you're saying is if you have a sister, you can be a successful wine writer. Like that's <laughs> Apparently, you really the... need a sister that you can bounce things off of. But maybe it's your neighbor or maybe it's somebody you work with or, it, again, wine interested, pretty well traveled. But, you know, they're not pouring over documents on terroir, et cetera. So it's a, it's a balance. We tweak a lot in the magazine. I mean, I think that we've changed quite a bit over the last five years as far as technicality goes. And we've had some successes and we've had some some missteps where it was like, eh, this doesn't, this really doesn't work. It's either too, too dumbed down, which we don't want to do, or this is so technical. It doesn't feel like it should be in this magazine. So it's, it's, it's a challenge sometimes. So it's trying to hit that broad swath of people in the middle, not right. the, not the total newbie, but not the serious, like the exactly. too serious guy. At the and end. I mean, you know, what's happened for us at least is because we have wine ratings, we do have a lot of people in the trade who read the magazine. Obviously they follow us. So we have a lot of people, readers who are very, very knowledgeable. I think that even the most, again, expert kind of critic or enthusiast, if you will, still wants to be entertained. And they still enjoy reading about something in a tone that maybe is a little, you know, I guess lighthearted or has a little fun to it. Doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel, uh, and I've had some great feedback as we've sort of shifted the tone of the magazine to be a little bit, hopefully smart, but also fun. People in the industry have, have said, this is a lot, I read this now. I didn't read it before, but I actually read it. So I know that we've we've actually maybe found a good tone because they're reading it as well as some of the new people, as well as some of the intermediate people. That's just been a really nice sort of side perk, I think. How um, much is crossover important in doing that? Putting wine with music, putting wine with travel, putting wine with a pop entertainment star, putting wine with cocktails or beer. How much is it where it's a kind of a crossover topic where you're really hitting two topics at once that helps you get the wine message across. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. That's something that we've been committing to a lot. We've got some issues. We committed last year, we did a music and wine issue. We're doing a film and wine issue this year. And a lot of our articles kind of tie travel and wine. It's just a way of hitting more people. And it's also a way of getting, A, it's a way of educating our our wine interested audience in something else that we think they would like. So we're curating it. We're like, we're not just, you know, randomly tacking things together. We're trying to figure out, okay, if if somebody's really into Bordeaux, you know, they're probably going to do some traveling down there. Let's talk about some restaurants or some galleries or something interesting they can do while they're there. It's not rocket science, but it's definitely something that we're more committed to. Um, So obviously you help enrich the world of a wine person by doing that, but you also hopefully draw new people into wine by tacking the wine stuff into other topics that are more mainstream. I really hope that we can do that. I, you know, and I think again, the music and wine issue that we did brought a lot of people into, even onto our site, people who would not probably have come there otherwise, but we're like, oh, this is really great. You know, um, you know, James Murphy from LCD sound system really knows wine. I'm really into music. I didn't even think about how cool wine could be. So now I'm, I'm on the wine enthusiast site. So that's obviously what we hope, you know, is we hope to pull people into, to wine in fun ways, in ways that are connected to their interests. And it kind of takes a little of that. It also takes a little, I think of the intimidation away which is, oh, well, I know about, I know music or I know travel or I know art or whatever really well. So I I could know wine too, I think. But is wine a topic that has to fight for market share? You know, a lot of times we kind of think of sports as a given or pop music as a given, but it feels like with wine, people generally feel like they need to get it out there somehow. Yeah. I mean, I think I think things are changing because more people, uh, you know, just at least in the States are becoming interested in wine. So there's more of a demand for that as far as the content goes. 
But I still think that it's still a sell. It's still a sell. There's still a lot of people in the U.S. who think of wine as an elitist, as a special occasion, too expensive for me. I mean, I'm surprised at how many people, regardless of age, still feel that way. So it's not like a, a, a shoe-in at this point. I know that we it's easy to get really excited about the numbers. You know, the consumption numbers are growing fast, and that's all really cool. But if you actually go out into the world and talk to people, there's still a lot of misconceptions about wine and enjoying wine, the price of wine, all of that. So as far as trying to get in front of people, I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, and it's not always a given that someone's going to pick up those magazines or, you know, listen to the podcast or you have to fight for it a little please, bit. Please, please yeah. listen to the podcast. We, we really want you to. <laughs> we'll do whatever we can. But uh, but it's it's still a fight a little bit, you know, but I, I'm, I'm very optimistic because I also see out in the world how many people, when they find out what I do, are super excited. They ask a lot of questions. It's nice for them to see a face associated with this topic. So I, I think it'll it'll change. Yeah, I've never had anyone go like, wow, that sucks, bro. No. You do wine podcasts. Yeah. Lame. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess it could happen. It's just never, I haven't had it happen. Yet. Yeah, usually what I get, and I'm sure you do, and we always laugh, is how do you get your work done if you're drunk all the time? And that's where it's like, okay, look, I actually do spit the wine that I taste. Sometimes I drink it. I'm not going to lie. Obviously, I enjoy wine myself. But I get that a lot where people are like, oh, how many wines do you taste in a day? I say, well, you know, it depends. Sometimes up to 50. What? How are you functioning? Like, how do you get to drink at work? And then that's the other one is, like, do you guys just drink all day at your desk? I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> I just tell them I have a really strong union. (laughs) I'm like, they go to bat for us so hard. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. How did you make the transition from wine country living to wine enthusiasts? So I was freelancing, doing some different projects in between. I worked on some book projects that were travel related, a lot of freelancing. I had some mentors, including Jim, in San Francisco who knew I was really interested in staying in publishing, that I had kind of been on a career track, though it was kind of going, you know, as I was focusing more on wine, it was a little less certain to me where I was going with it. They all were basically like, look, if you want to make a a serious career for yourself in publishing, you got to go to New York. And I kind of did the opposite. I went to the West instead of the East. And my family's from Michigan, obviously, and my husband has family in New York. So I said, you know, why not? Why not do it now? Let's see what, what we can do. So I start, sort of put the feelers out with everybody I knew in the industry and said, look, I might be interested in making a move. Who do you know and what should I do? So I had amazing, really supportive feedback and got great contacts. And, you know, I, I did interview with a lot of different magazines, um, wine magazines, lifestyle, et cetera. The Wine Enthusiast Connection basically came through the owner, Adam Strum, who was out for Napa auction. I was still in California and he called me up and was like, let's meet, let's have lunch at Auberge de Soleil, which, you know, is not so bad. So he kind of knows what he's doing. I was like, this, this is pretty nice. So we had lunch and I really liked him. I'm, he's super creative. He was really open to my ideas. I mean, honestly, he could have just brushed me aside and been, you know, sort of dismissive, like, what is this really do? Who is this person? You know, who's this West Coast person with minimal, you know, sort of wine journalism. But I think he recognized that, again, a fresh voice, was passionate. I had the the knowledge of wine at that point. Certainly, West Coast New World Wines, obviously, was more of my focus having been in California. And he, he liked all of that. He wanted that. So, we sort of went back and forth for a while. I talked to, again, some other magazines, and I just really liked what, you know, Wine Enthusiast always stood for approachability. It had a fun feel to it, and I just felt like that was more of a fit for me. And also knowing him and knowing that he was kind of a progressive guy, I really liked that because that's not often the case in publishing. I mean, they will say, we really want new blood. We really want fresh, you know, perspective. So we can trample on them. (laughs) Kind of. So that we can tell you that we've already done that or that's a dumb idea. And, you know, whatever. I I don't mean to be overly negative, but that's, it does happen. So I really liked that he was open and he seemed sincere about it. So that's basically, so I came in as just a senior editor. I was working on trends pieces. I was not tasting right off the bat because they wanted to vet me a little as they should have. 
And then over time, they kind of eased me into some smaller territories. So I think I started out doing other U.S., which is... Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, you're from Michigan, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Why don't we put you in other U.S.? Other U.S. So I got... I got Idaho. At least it wasn't other China. Other China, I mean? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, what do you think about those wines from Kuala Lumpur? Uh, exactly, exactly. But yeah, I was well, some of the stuff I was tasting. I was tasting some, actually, that beat was great for me because it, it, it did open my mind. Now, sure. when, I, when I talk about emerging regions, I'm like, well, I tasted some pretty decent wines from Idaho that surprised the hell out of me at that time, which I never would have joked about. And I had them and was like, these are actually pretty good. So I did that for a while. I did some Europe. I did Hungary. That was one of my first beats. I did New York, Virginia. I had some, I, you know, as I sort of was learning, I had some great beats. And then I moved on. I ended up picking up South Africa, which for me was a huge turning point in my tasting career. How so? Because it was, A, like, uh, you know, I was able to, to spend time in South Africa, which the travel sort of interests that I have Obviously, that was a great experience for me. Very interesting and, you know, met some really amazing people. But I came in as a taster there at a really crucial time for that category, which was the wines had just sort of started to hit their stride and they were just starting to become available in the U.S. So I was part of the the process of getting those wines on people's radar. And now, I mean, they're still... Yeah, everybody's fighting for their place on the shelf, but they're really recognized now. The South African wines are are visible. They're they're well rated. People love them. Um, I got to watch that progression, and in, in some cases, I was part of the progression of those wines becoming popular in this country. Because in some ways, in the way that prohibition inhibited our, yes. our wine industry, apartheid probably Definitely. inhibited their industry they at were least in, a, in terms of exports. They were kind of in a time capsule um, for many years. They were just producing for themselves. There wasn't a lot of outside, you know, there wasn't a lot of perspective. But t- there's great terroir in South Africa. There were some really good winemakers. They just were, they were operating in a vacuum, in a bubble. And I basically was there when that opened up and watched what happened. And it it was really exciting because suddenly there were people coming in, you know, the, these winemakers started traveling and going and doing harvests in Australia, in California, wherever they were, you know, France, et cetera, bringing all that knowledge back and really impacting the quality of, of what was being made. Obviously, socially as well, there's a, it was a very interesting time to be spending in Africa, in South Africa. You know, in some cases, it was upsetting. I saw things that in the early days that still upset me, you know, but it's changed. It's come a long way. So it's, for me, travel isn't supposed to always be pleasant and happy. Sometimes travel is challenging and you learn. And so as a person, I think that was a cool beat for me to be on, obviously. What other trend topics were coming across your desk at that era? Food and wine, the the idea of food and wine pairing, which is so to uh, you know anyone who's traveled in Europe, it's like really. We I think a lot of Europeans sort of also are surprised, like you guys don't know that cheese and wine do well together. It wasn't really that big of a topic. It started to become a big topic when I you know my first probably cup two three years at wine enthusiast. We saw people started asking a lot of questions about it. As food, as the food network and chefs got big, people started asking us a lot of questions like, well, you know, I'm really into these foods. Like, what wine should I have with it? So I would say definitely I hadn't seen that before. And, you know, we, as part of my beat, I was also doing trends, so front of book pieces that we do, which is short pieces that are trends driven. I started writing a lot about wine and food together and interviewing chefs. And recognizing that, you know, that had as much of a place in a wine magazine as the sommelier interview did, if it was the person who knew how to do those things. So a lot of that came up. We released a wine and food pairings book while it was in those early stages, which I edited. And it did extreme. Yeah, wine and food. Yeah, pairings. um, And that did really well. I mean, that flew off the shelves. And I was like, whoa, okay, Clearly, people are interested in this. So, and that's continued now. I mean, it's huge. It's like ubiquitous with wine. You have to know about food culture and wine, you know, wine directors and head executive chefs. There should be kind of joined at the hip at this point. Most of them are. That was like the early stages of it. And I just, again, watched that just blow up. So that was kind of interesting. As you were there longer, how did that concept of approachability of publication integrate into what you were up to? 
when I was brought on into my executive editor role, I was like, we need to commit to this. And part of that was, again, obviously, we have a tasting team, super knowledgeable. We have a scoring system. We do all of that. I'm really proud of our tasting team. But it was I policed even more, and I think our editors policed even more, whether something read well. You know, and is this interesting? There's a lot of information in this piece, but is it actually readable? And there's a lot of, I think still, unfortunately, it's gotten a lot better, thankfully, but there was a lot of wine journalism that wasn't very readable. And I think anybody in the industry would agree with that. And even some of the people who were writing it would look back at it now and say, eh, you know, it wasn't that great. I probably <laughs> could have made that a little more interesting. I so, read a piece recently that was about the writer going and participating in a cocktail competition and then losing that competition. Yeah, yeah. And that could have been a very dry reportage kind of thing. Like, I went, the top finishers of the cocktail competition were, you know, this guy's Negroni. Yep. And, and that could have been like a ranking and kind of dry. Right. But instead, it was a it was almost like a personal tale of... It's kind of like a confessional. And I think that's the other thing. That's a... Kara, who is our... Newman is our spirits editor, and she did that piece. And she... Here's a woman who, I mean, really is one of the foremost sort of, you know, knowledgeable people about spirits in the world. I love her humility. And I think, honestly, that's something I also love and hope that we have is that even the most experienced taster on our team will say, oh, I, I could not nail that wine in a blind. I mean, there we talk openly about the challenges and we have fun with it. You know, you don't have to be right all the time. You shouldn't be right all the time. If you're right all the time, then you're not, you, you need to keep learning. So I love that Kara basically went in really cocky and thought, you know, look at who I am. I should be able to do this with my eyes closed. And she failed miserably. And she recognized that she, you know, it's, there's so much to learn. There's so much to know. And it really made her respect these other mixologists, the people she writes about and works with even more because she recognized it's not that easy. The more you know, the more you don't know. And, and that's key. I think it's key to any pursuit of knowledge. And I think it's key to being a good journalist is knowing how to convey that to the reader. Look, I know a lot. I don't know everything there is to know. Don't feel bad. Like we're on this together. We'll learn together. And I think implicit in that piece was the idea that the cocktail scene is moving so fast yeah. that there were these new techniques and things that even she, someone who covers this field, was surprised by. Definitely. I mean, cocktails for me, I love the fact that we're covering them. Obviously, wine's our first focus, but we, again, recognize people who love great wine, love great spirits, and they love great beer. So the spirits culture is so interesting to me. And I think it's what's really interesting about spirits right now is that it's following the footsteps as far as mainstream culture. I think it's following in the food footsteps, which is, you know, what happened with food was you had these, again, I, I'm citing Food Network, there are others, but suddenly chefs became rock stars and everybody was like, oh, wow, I really want to know how he does that. And they knew all the names of the chefs, et cetera. And it was like, how do people, what, why did that happen? Like, these are people who are just, you know, working in hospitality and they're talented, but why did they become so vaulted? And it's happening with mixologists as well, you know, where it's sort of like there's this this sort of energy around them and this kind of glamour, whether it's right or wrong. And a lot of them joke about it because they're like, I'm a bartender, you know, calm down. But there's this glamour and sort of like intrigue around these personalities. And it's getting people really interested in cocktails and good cocktails and really good spirits. And it's because they see these people and they think they're so interesting. And I, I mean, that's that's cool. I mean, that's one another way of getting people interested in this stuff. I hope we can get people interested in wine in the same way. It's probably going to be through sommeliers. You know, that is one of the, the sort of gatekeeping roles that's super important in the real world. As somebody who comes to the table, is interacting in, in real life with somebody who's interested, a, you know, a patron, and can make it fun, interesting, is knowledgeable, but is engaging, all that stuff. So to me, the Psalms are kind of that rock star side of wine. Um, and I'm we really try to work closely in our edit with different sommeliers that we think are doing great things because we see that that's interesting to a reader. Is there a need to bring in a little star power, whether it be a name chef, a popular mixologist, or a star sommelier to a piece to kind of, in the same way that, you know, 
interview magazine would be interested in brand name celebrities. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's just reality. That's just media, you know, and, and we've had our moments of fighting it saying, oh, we don't, you know, we don't need to, to go to these big name, big name chefs or, you know, really, really publicized wine directors, et cetera. Let's just do it on our, you know, it is reality. And that's what people gets people excited. That's you know, when you're talking about the digital side of our business, me, you know, social media and, you know, sort of websites and Facebook, et cetera, that's what gets shared and that's what gets fast traction. So even though I really, we really try to work with people that we not only are well-known, but that we respect and we feel are solid, we do. We definitely we looked for that. And and the music, the wine and music issue, the film and wine issue that's coming up clearly beyond, I, I think, just being a fun topic. It's great. Those are big names. I mean, you're talking about directors, actors, you know, producers who are into wine. And a lot of them are musicians. There are a lot of those guys and women are into wine. It's fun to write about, but it also all of them go out and tell the story of of what we're doing as well. And it's great. It's good exposure for us and it gets the wine culture to more people. So, yeah, yeah, we do it. When I think about the wine publication field, mm-hmm. it seems like there's some real strong titles. Right. There are often periodicals that have a certain way about them. Sure. Like they chose a, a path of sure. what they do. Right. Is it hard to navigate between some of those real strong poles? Well, do you mean as a reader or as somebody in the business? I'm As an executive editor, when you're charting the course of a publication yeah you know is it is sometimes is it like oh we sound a lot like that guy maybe we need look to. we all we all probably borrow from each other if if you're doing you know, i think it's what imitation is the sincerest form of flattery it's a Oscar Wilde quote it's to- it's true we you know we borrow from each other if somebody's doing something really well it, i'm you know and it fits into what i'm interested in doing sure i you know there will be shades of that in the same way that when we do something well i see shades of it in other magazines as time goes on but I actually have found, at least for us, in the direction that we've taken, it's, it hasn't been very difficult because I feel like there has been this sort of polarizing, very sort of, again, siloed direction for a lot of wine magazines. That's actually good. I'm happy about that because what I recognize is, okay, I see what's being done. What's not being done? Who's not speaking, what segment of the wine drinking population is not being spoken to, or what kind of culture of wine is not being addressed in these other titles? Let's do that. And so that's what we've done. You know, we recognize, and again, not to say that that other magazines don't, or publications don't have shades of things we do. Again, we all, we all do something similarly. But I was surprised at how it was kind of clear to me when I, and, you know, I do work with on the business side, uh, our VP of publishing is from Condon. He's a Condon Nast guy. So his, he came from very much from lifestyle fashion, not from wine at all, which was great for me because he had a really great perspective, but we both were like, let's be strategic. Like who is not being spoken to with these other titles? Let's do it. And that's pretty much what we did. And so far it's been great. I mean, we're getting really great feedback on it. So, and sort of also the, the thing that I try to do is, Ideally, your staff is comprised of the people that you want to write for, because then you're not sounding insincere by trying to write, you know, in a way that that doesn't make sense. And and our staff not only has a lot of, you know, the wine critics, some with decades of tasting experience, but we have new hires, people from Rolling Stone, from Men's Health, from non-wine magazines who get trends, they get culture, they get the lifestyle, but they aren't experts. So they know how to help balance out the tone. Did you see growth in the number of editors that you had? Yes. Yeah, we grew the staff over the last three years quite a bit. We added two extra tasters in California. This We added another taster in the Pacific Northwest. We added somebody in Europe you know, it's like five or six, seven people, something like that on the tasting side. And then, um, you know, new editors coming in, I'm hiring right now. <laughs> Does it feel that with the global marketplace of wine, it's important to get more coverage of more areas? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it's important to show that you are on top of these these different regions. And I think because of what's happened in wine, somebody meeting a reader or a wine consumer walks into a wine shop they have access to these wines now. 
I mean, they see wines that they never did before. So you have to write about the things that they're encountering or you're not doing them the service that you say you're doing. Now, obviously, we don't have unlimited resources to write about everything happening all the time. But I really think one of the things we try to do is we write about the big topics, obviously the big categories, you know, France and Italy and California, we definitely hit those pretty hard. But we are pretty discovery driven. And we do write about the emerging regions as well that we think people are getting excited about. In a national publication, is it hard to determine what's available nationally in wine? Because it seems like so many markets are dissimilar from each other. Yeah, that's that's true. That's something our tasting director works with the tasters on quite a bit. You know, and, and she has a team of people who follow up on a lot of that as well. They actually regularly check whether these wines are available and where they're available. We try to, not to say that we don't occasionally write about th- about wines that are just spectacular and maybe hard to find, but you really need to know. But most of the time we try to write about wines people can get because I think it's, it's frustrating t- as a reader to get excited about something and then find that it's just impossible to get it. I think that was, honestly, that was one of the big sort of the feedback I got when I was looking at, you know, how can we be different? A lot of the people that we talk to professionally and also just in personal life are like, I really, really hate not being able to get stuff that people are writing about. And it happens all the time. You know, it's great. You're the taster, the editor. You have access to everything, of course. But remember me, I don't have access to all that. So you have to be careful. Did you see that evolution with California wine? Because I feel like as the cult cabs got bigger, sometimes they got harder to find, bigger in terms of reputation. Yeah, I mean, definitely as something becomes more sort of sought after it's or sought out, it becomes more difficult to get them. And that's Again, why we, our California coverage, we've really tried to sort of branch away from those super kind of difficult to find wines. And we're covering more of just these really cool emerging wines that are coming out. I mean, Central Coast wines for me, we just added a taster down there, which was part of our growth. There's some amazing wine coming out of the Central Coast right now. It's available. A lot of people don't know about it. Why would we keep focusing on these small production, very expensive, difficult, hard-to-find wines when there's this amazing sort of new growth of great wines and really world-class? So there's not to say that these aren't world-class wines as well, but there are other places that you can look to and other categories you can look to for great wines without having to hit the same ones, especially if that happens where they start to become very difficult to, to reach and find. Sometimes people in the wine industry complain that it's become too much like the fashion world and that it's always on to the next new thing. Too trendy. How do you think that the wine world is progressing and is it you know based on a next news cycle or is it based on an agricultural cycle or where do you find the balance? You have to remember there's a reason that the great sort of classic wines of the world have been so popular for so long. I mean, I always say it's really easy as a journalist to be sort of enticed by the new, 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 you know, I mean, it's like, oh, wow, they're making this new sort of funky wine in Croatia. Like, let's cover that. And I think that happens on the, on the Psalm end too. Obviously, people get really enamored with these crazy new wines that are coming out. There's a reason that France and Italy, you know, again, old world classic wines, Burgundy, Bordeaux, uh, you know, the great super Tuscans of the world. Those are great wines. And you should always, to me as a journalist, as a wine journalist, don't forget to write about those because those are some of the best wines in the world. I mean, I believe that. It's a balance. I mean, you should be writing about those. Hopefully you can find some new angles on those wines, some new producers who are working in those categories. To me, we always have to continue to hit those wines. They're really great. But I also think it's important to talk about some of the new things that people, again, I don't think you should be so obscure that you're you're now writing about wines that haven't even made it to the market yet. But I do think you should write about some of the wines that people will see, encounter on a wine list now or will encounter in a, in a retail shop. So for us, part of how we kind of keep ourselves in check is we're pretty active. We the editorial team, we're out all the time. We go to dinners. We are at wine bars. And we're not just in New York or we're not just in one place. We're all over the country. And then we have people in Europe as well. And, and we talk. You know, what, what are you guys seeing like that's big right now? I mean, we have an Italian editor who's based over, you know, in Italy. And it, 
It's like, well, what's what are you seeing over there that's big right now, or what what are you hearing that's coming big on you know in the states on your end? And so we talk about that stuff and try to stay in check and again not become too crazy with like the super obscure stuff. Um, and I I have to credit our managing editor. He's he's like the voice of reason always. Where his name's Joe Cherwinski, and he he's really into extremely knowledgeable, loves all the crazy wines, but he's usually one like that says, wait a minute guys, like we haven't written about like the Rhone in a year. Like we need to take this back or we need to talk about Chardonnay. People still really like Chardonnay. Let's not forget that like most of the people in the U.S., that's their first white they're going to. So does he have a sister? Joe does have a sister. See? Oh, I don't, I should ask him. The secret revealed. You're right. I think most of us do have a sister though. (laughs) So you took on the executive editor role about five years ago, right. how much of it became a digital mandate? I would say for me, you know, to be completely transparent, I think we could have done more than we've done. And next year, this sort of right now, I'm very sort of deep in planning for the digital side of the business. I think I focused first on the print publication because I knew it had to be redesigned. I knew it had to be repositioned. I knew we needed some, you know, new blood and the whole thing. So I wish now, looking back, I had done those two in a little more in tandem. I didn't. Now, that all said, to be fair, I think that our website is pretty progressive. I mean, the wine space isn't always the most progressive. I wish I could say it were when it comes to sort of innovation on the technology side, the wine space in general. I think that, you know, I'm happy with what we have, but we're redesigning the website. So, you know, we, we can't actually have a moment to rest. So <laughs> we're, we've redesigned the print magazine. Now I'm looking to the website and re, we're kind of repositioning that as well and trying to get a better read on what that audience is. Because I think most publications have found their web and the print audience is slightly different. It, that's, it is a big part of, of my role and it's, it's going to become an even bigger part of my role. It's not only just in reaching people and reaching the audience that we say we want to reach, it's also in staying in business. You know, you have to be, this is what people want. So that's exciting. There's a lot that can be done. And what I've found is we have these discussions about the site and different apps that we could be doing and just the interactivity that we really would love to see. And it's sort of like, God, we just need like to clone ourselves. We just need more people to do it. So, you know, the ideas are there and hopefully over the next year, you'll see more of that happening with us. How do you suspect that the desires of the digital audience is different than the print audience? What might they be looking for that's different? I think it's the same person, but I think they might be coming to both sides of it for different things. So I think it's really dangerous to to start separating personalities out because I think most curious people I know, regardless of what their profession is, they read print magazines, they're online, they're on their phone, they're on everything. So I, my feeling is they might go to the web for breaking news. They want things right away. They might go to the web for quick, really quick bites. Like what's, you know, sort of give me the top 10 reasons why I should drink Chardonnay, whatever. Give me six cabs I really like. And you really don't have to tell me anything. Put it in a slideshow. Just give me the name and the price. You know, there's that. There's, uh, I think, education for, for what I really feel is that, and it's really interesting, I think that people who are interested in wine, they will go to a website for really basic information. They want quick, I just, just tell me what this means. I don't understand how to read this German label. That might not be something, and we do cover that in the print magazine as well, but I just feel like the quick takes, the education, trends, like breaking news type of trends, all that does really well on the site. The print magazine is a little bit more of the lifestyle, which is beautiful photography. Show me how to set a table and tell me more more about it. I'll actually sit and spend a little more time with this. But it's not necessarily a different person. It's just maybe a different time of day. I don't know. You know, different mood. And look, I think everybody in publishing is trying to figure this one out right now. So I think more will be revealed as more of these studies of how people are reading now come out. But has wine become more youthful in general as a demographic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that if you look at the statistics, and I know one of the things that happened, not happened, but over the last five years since I've been in this role, there's a lot of talk about the like, millennial and 
the millennial group being, you know, the next great thing for wine. China was another one that, that everybody's talked about. I don't disagree that that, you know, the millennial group is super important because it's it's a huge, massive number of people and the behaviors definitely are different than they were with the the generations before. But I actually I think it's dangerous to get too obsessed with the idea of youth being the driving force. And I sometimes see this happen with producers, you know, and it's it's a measured thing. You need to look at the big picture. I think a youthful approach to wine is more important than actually tagging an age onto it. So I think that's what gets people excited is maybe what people are seeing is there's this sort of open-mindedness that comes from a lot, again, a lot of millennials in the market. They're like, I'll try it. I don't have a lot of preconceptions about these wines. So I'm actually open to whatever, just give me something new. That's to me the refreshing side of what I'm seeing happening. And I, so I feel like for us, we can write in that fresh tone. We can write in that sort of invigorated, adventurous, open tone. But it doesn't mean that somebody in their 50s who's really into wine isn't going to respond to that. I think we've actually found that's not the case, that we have gotten a lot of our existing readers who might have been a little older are the ones who are writing in and they're like, well, this is great. I really love this. this is Real, I'm learning a lot and I want to read it. So, uh, you know, I think, sure, demographically, there's the the people who are driving consumption are younger than they used to be. You know, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds who put, they're going to spend money on wine. I don't know that that used to happen as much. But I also think it's important to be careful about just tagging ages on things. Is advertising more difficult in the wine realm than the travel or spirits realm? Like, is it easier to attract liquor advertisers than wine advertisers? Definitely. I mean, one is there's just a bigger budget. So if you want to just speak completely about the business side of it, spirits has is more of a mainstream sort of taste right now. So they just there's just more money. There's, there are more people drinking it. There are more people buying it. There are more people responding to those ads. Spirits companies have money and they they also, I will say, are pretty smart and progressive and open. You know, they'll try different things. They're pretty adventurous in the partnerships they make. And I think that's where we, you know, have had some really good partnerships with different brands because they want to try stuff. They want to try something new. So I see, definitely see it on that side. Travel, we call it non-endemic. So the stuff, non-endemic is anything that's not wine related. So it's going to be any advertiser or partner who's outside of the wine realm, travel, um, luxury, so fashion, same thing, just more money behind him. And it tends to be a little bit more open, like, let's just try this. Let's see, you know, let's be a little out of the box on this. The wine sphere is tough. There are a lot of people who obviously the wine category is still growing. So the numbers are not as big when you look at wine consumption or, you know, wine interest as maybe spirits in the U.S. I mean, it's gaining on it, definitely is. It's doing really well. But I think wine producers, depending on who they are, some of the the bigger ones, you know, they want it, they've got the budget, they want to try new things. And, and there, there's obviously some great exceptions to what, you know, what I'm going to say, which is that a lot of them are very traditional still. They're nervous, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily as I wish they were, you know, and, and again, I'm, I will turn that completely around on us as well and say we all in the, on the wine press side, we could be more progressive and adventurous. So the whole category is growing and, you know, we could probably learn a little bit from some of those other categories, which is, you know, we need to think out of the box a little more and take ourselves out of our silo that we're in again talk to people outside of the industry, what would you, what event would you go to? Not just talk to each other. So uh, there's, there's learning to be done, but it's, again, it's a huge growing category and it seems to be, it's more mainstream than it ever was before. So I think it's, we, everybody will benefit from it. What about the accessories side of the business? It mm -hmm. seems that wine enthusiast has a large accessories component yeah. to it in terms of sales. Mm -hmm. Where does that fit in with the magazine? Well, I mean, it fits in really perfectly. And we're actually pretty lucky because the accessories business was the origin of the whole company. So that came first. The magazine came second. One of the things that I think is really important when you're writing for, 
you know, uh, anyone is you have to give them context. And I always call it the follow through, which is don't just throw a title at somebody. Don't just say, okay, this Cabernet scored 92 points. See ya, you know? Okay, great. You've got the wine that you're interested in. You've got the score. If that's your thing, if you're interested in that now, what do I do with it? What do I do now? And, And that's the part that a lot of people forget to address in, at least in wine journalism. Now, here's what you pair it with. Here's how you open it. (laughs) I mean, it sounds basic, but you should probably decant that wine, that Italian wine. Here's a decanter. You want one? I mean, to me, it's sort of like it all fits in together. And I, you know, we do, we do incorporate those accessories into articles where it makes sense because people want it. They ask us, well, okay, you told me to decant it. Where do I get a decanter? What kind of decanter should I use? You know, having this really great party, you know, on New Year's Eve and I want, I want a cool wine opener. Like you've told me how to set the table and what glasses to use, but I want to, I don't want to look like an idiot and have like a cheap wine opener. What should I do? So to me, it's just part of the follow through and it's just giving them the whole package of everything. So we're kind of lucky in that we have that. How do you keep a larger editorial staff on the same page? What are techniques as an executive editor that you do to present a publication that reads as one voice or as a unified voice? Well, one thing that I do that I probably is not typical of most executive editors is I read everything as it's circling. So I see it at least twice. I don't wait until the end to see things. I see it in the early stages. I'm in the planning meetings. So I'm sitting in when we do assignment meetings. We have one tomorrow. We talk about ideas and that's, and obviously I'm not the only one doing that. If I have anybody, you know, if I've chosen well, which I think I have, all of the editors police each other. So we talk, we have assignment meetings for every issue. We all sit in, we talk through the ideas, we bring up any concerns we have. Usually that's where I'll say, okay, guys, we're going a little heavy on, you know, in this direction, this is a little too technical or flip side. This is, I think our reader's smarter than this. Let's tell them a little more about how to do this, this or that. So we meet a lot. We talk a lot. I'm, whether the editors like it or not, I'm in their offices all the time. We have a lot of impromptu conversations about what we're working on and the direction of the magazine, what, you know, what they're seeing as they're out in the market. Because again, I, I think it's really important for editors to travel and to get away from their desk and to actually not only get out to events, but go travel, see the world, do things so that they can come back and be informed. So I'm, we're constantly talking about what we're seeing. I mean, I wish that we could do it more than we do, but we have a, you know, a lot we produce. So uh, we do standing meetings. You know, we do a Monday meeting. We do a stand-up meeting. We do a lot of meetings. And it's just the way that we stay on the same page. With a bigger editorial staff, do you find yourself adding pages to the publication that comes out or are they declining pages? Magazine's getting bigger. I mean, I think it's getting bigger, A, because the adverti- there's more support, which is good. We all want that. But there's, you know, there's also more to cover. There's just, yeah, absolutely, as we've added staff. And, you know, obviously we have people off-site as well. So I should mention we have a, a large team of tasters who are international or into other parts of the country and I, you know, I'm on email and calling them as much as I can. And we do a standing editorial meeting where we fly everyone in in the summer and everyone sits around a table for three days and we, as a group, talk. But yeah, the more people, good people we add, the more great pitches are coming in. So it's a good problem to have, which is we have more sort of topics and more pieces to write about than we sometimes even have space for. But that's where the advertising guys come in and they're like, okay. You know, you guys want more, we're going to see what we can do. It kind of goes hand in hand. The better at it we have, the more, hopefully, and I think that's happened for us, thankfully, the better at it and the more relevant at it you have, the more interest you have in business. So it goes together. One of the things I noticed about the wine enthusiasts is that there are writers who are close to the consumer in the sense that they write first person in a sense, like kind of putting the consumer in their shoes or being in the shoes of the consumer at what at an event or some sort of tasting or opening or travel experience. But then as a publication, it also has a closeness to the industry and it recognizes people that that are doing standout things in the industry Mm -hmm. with its own awards and Mm -hmm. and other categories. How do those two things join? We have sort of this, I think it's an advantage or a great thing in that we have people who are reading our magazine, who are in the industry, who follow us 
not only because of I think you know we're we're reporting on trends that they want to know and that they hopefully are responding to for their own consumer base or whatever, but we you know it's really important for us to stay close to people in the industry to know what the actual trends are. So we make a, an, an effort to obviously work with the trade on on the editorial planning that we do. Because you could be in a room and think like, oh, you know, Karen Yon is killing it right now. Yeah. But unless you talk to that guy in the trade and you say, hey, what are your sales numbers for Karen Yon? And yeah. he tells you high or low. Yeah. You don't I really mean, have a- I mean, I think it has to be pretty, you have to have, if you're going to write in any informed way about these topics, you've got to be close to the industry. And thankfully, the industry has been close to us as well. And what I was kind of getting at earlier was, you know, we do have ratings and reviews. So because of that, obviously, the industry follows us. I mean, we understand that they that impacts the, the business. So they follow us for that reason. But I also think, you know, we have trade people in the trade reading us because they want to learn what 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 do we think is happening out there. On the flip side, again, I really want to know what they're hearing about, what's moving off the shelves. And the editors as well, they need to know these people. We need feedback because it on both sides you can get you can can go off the rails and not realize it until somebody sets you straight. You can kind of get into a mindset which is, oh, you know, I I know that, you know, people are only now drinking Austrian whites and it's like, no, Chardonnay is still number one in this country. And this, you know, this, whether it's a distributor, importer, producer, they'll tell you that. And so it's important for us to have that dialogue. I, you know, I think it's important definitely to recognize people in the industry who are doing things that are changing the way that consumers drink. And I, I like doing that. And I think some of the programs like the Wine Star Awards that we do, we do a top 40 under 40, which is recognizing innovative young people in the wine sphere. I love doing that because that's, we have to support you guys. You know, we have to support what, what's being done. You're helping us do our job well as well. So, Susan Castrava of The Wine Enthusiast, she's looking to hear what's out there and share it with you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Susan Castrava, executive editor of The Wine Enthusiast magazine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.